From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. When you are starting a new job, the mind frame that you get yourself into is that you've started a newer and better chapter of your life and that things have been assembled in perfect formation. And part of that new and perfect life that you've assembled is exercise in the morning. This is my friend Charles. You want a brisk run through the park or a... (laughs) You want to feel invigorated. You want to feel invigorated because... Guess what? You've got a new job. Your whole life is about to change. You may remember Charles from last week's episode. He's the one who related to Cher. In that episode, we talked about quitting jobs. And this week, we're talking about what comes next. New jobs. Charles has had more jobs than anyone I know. And every time he starts a new job, he treats it like a new beginning. He gets a good night's sleep. He wakes up before dawn. And he heads to the park to greet the day in running shorts. And then how long does that typically last for you? That lasts, if it lasts two weeks, it has lasted a lifetime. When you start a new job, maybe you've got a fantasy of the life you want to lead. A life where you're always up early and prepared, ambitious, confident, well-liked. You know the person you want to be. And then you walk in the door and your fantasy future collides with reality. Are you actually going to be able to pull off being this person? How long will it be before you're revealed as your true, shameful self? Over the summer when I was working at an enormous cosmetics company, everyone was required to say their name, where they went to school in the past, and a fun fact. A fun fact is something that all or many new workplaces want you to articulate, some fun fact about yourself. It's the first day. What are you going to say? Think about that right now. You want to be careful not to get too fun with your fun fact. Have you ever seen anyone really bomb the fun fact portion of their well, job onboarding? Well, there was one, someone, they said that their fun fact was that they acted on the weekends and that we should all come see their production of Peter Pan. Oh, God. And, and I was just like, this is too much. No. I know. I now don't trust you. I don't respect respect you. you. I wish I didn't know that this is what you did on the weekends. This fun fact has gone overboard. This has utterly undermined your credibility. (laughs) It's completely. On today's show, we're talking to two women about trying to navigate new jobs without becoming the Peter Pan guy. How do you embrace the optimism of starting over without losing yourself or going totally overboard in the process? Back in 2012, Anna Wiener worked as an assistant in book publishing. And it was a sad time to work in book publishing. Amazon seemed poised to strangle the industry. The old-school literary glamour of tweed and three-martini lunches had been replaced by polyester and desk salads. Anna was 25, and somehow she felt like she'd already reached a dead end. But one day she was sitting at her desk, reading the internet, when she saw something that caught her eye. So I saw this post on the Paris Review blog that had this photograph of these three men, and they all looked so jolly. They just had these, like, big smiles on their faces, and they were so young, and they had really good skin. 
They were three tech guys even younger than her, who just raised $3 million to start an e-reading app called Oyster. By Silicon Valley startup standards, $3 million is an okay amount of money. By publishing assistance standards, it's mind-blowing. So even though Anna had never imagined herself working in tech, even though she had always seen herself as a book person, and pretty much all her friends were book people, and they all lived in apartments filled with hardcover books and old magazines and records and film for secondhand cameras, she started thinking that maybe tech could be her future. And in my effort to be a go-getter, slash in my desperation, I emailed them this incredibly florid, like, publishing-style email. I could read it to you. If yeah. I, I, <laughs> okay, so just picture me sitting at my publishing desk. I've probably just eaten, like, a sad salad. Dear Eric, Andrew, and Willem, I think you're addressing some of the most significant issues for publishers, writers, and readers right now, and I couldn't be more thrilled by the changes I anticipate Oyster will bring. I don't know whether you're currently hiring, but I would be thrilled to contribute in any way possible. <laughs> Drink my blood. <laughs> so then it ends. As you may have gleaned, I'm really excited about what you're doing and would be honored to help out. I would be honored just to be paid to do literally anything. <laughs> it would be an honor to me. <laughs> <laughs> There's more emails that I could read to you, but I would really rather not, that I wrote to them being like, I may not understand what a back end is, <laughs> but I love books. <laughs> the clean, happy ebook boys hired her. So she put on her most office appropriate attire and set off to start a new life. I sort of showed up to work in my publishing wrap dress apparel and was like, what would you like me to do? Which is just not what you say to three people who are trying to get a company off the ground. Mm. What you say is like, I've identified these key problems and don't even worry about it. I'm working on the solutions and it's going to be great. She'd known how to talk to bosses back when she was a publishing assistant. But this was a new kind of boss. The CEO often said, you, so people would, someone would pitch an idea to him and he had this way of saying, let's do it. And it just was like the most affirming thing I've ever heard. It's like more affirming than like when my therapist laughs at my jokes. Like, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. They just were this like bastion of confidence. They were super optimistic. They were cheerful. They were smart. They were ambitious. They were sort of this like sunny counterpart to the people I knew in publishing who I loved, but who were all like, I don't know what's happening with my life. Like, you know, doom and gloom a little bit. So Anna started adapting herself to an optimistic milieu. She tried to catch the confidence in the air. It was strange but seductive to work someplace with a sense of forward momentum. That first job was a short contract, but when it was up, she started applying to other tech jobs, and each one carried her farther afield from the world of books, the world she knew, which was how she wound up in San Francisco, where, one day, she rode an elevator up to a job interview and emerged to confront the following scene. There's a whole floor of a building, and people were, like, on these two-plated skateboards called ripsticks to get from one end of the office to the other, you know, at standing desks, wearing their Patagonia fleeces. At this point in her tech career, Anna did not yet own a Patagonia fleece. One of the questions that they asked me was, um, what is your favorite app on your phone, and how would you use our product in it? 
And what that meant was like, what metrics would you track for this app? Like what's the revenue model? How would you like build out a funnel to show the steps a user would take to bring in revenue? I was like, literally the only app on my phone is the Susan Miller Astrology Zone app. (laughs) And I was like, well, I think the Astrology Zone app is free. And the like Susan Miller's metrics, you know, her like KPI is to just have people reading their horoscope. Like I just had no idea what I was doing. She didn't have a ripstick or a fleece or apps. She was missing the whole Silicon Valley starter pack. But this was a company with a whole empty floor to fill, a sea of empty standing desks waiting for new hires. They were ready to grow fast and ready to bring Anna along for the ride. She became a customer success manager, and she set about learning the language. I was constantly trying to, um, like, sound like I knew what I was talking about with the tech stuff and confusing things. Like, I was calling everything, like, the back end. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's the back end. It's a back end problem. Yeah, like just look it up on the back end. <laughs> and it wasn't just the language. It was the local customs. The way that people email and tech, it's like six words at a time. Like there's no like, dear Molly, like yours sincerely. Can't wait to hear from you. Like it's just like, did you do that thing? Hey, I saw you did that thing. Good job. Did you see yourself as a person who worked in tech, like as a tech person at that point? Yeah. And I feel like that was an identity that I wore pretty proudly. Like um, one of the company's sort of unofficial slogans was, I am data driven. (laughs) And we had these t-shirts that said, I am data driven. And my business card said, I am data driven. And I believed for a while that I too was data driven, although (laughs) I think I'm uh, probably more feelings driven. Over time, though, her feelings were getting harder to ignore. When you're new someplace, it can feel like you are honored to do literally anything. So you're willing to change everything, the way you dress, the way you speak, whatever it takes to fit in. Eventually, though, there are limits. You reach your threshold. And that's what was happening to Anna, the better she understood the work she was doing. She spent her days using a setting called God Mode, peering into customers' data sets so she could help them solve their problems. Because her company's customers were other tech companies, the data was information about their users, what they were buying, when they were exercising, their politics, their income bracket, where they lived. Anna and her coworkers avoided acknowledging just how much private information they could see. And besides, underneath the company hoodie, she was still the same person, a person who cared about words and feelings. Sometimes she'd find herself looking at the data-driven t-shirts and feeling concerned about the hyphen missing between data and driven. I started spending a lot of time in the server room, which was just this like supply closet with some hardware in it. And I remember it's in my performance, my one-year performance review, like, Anna appears to be spending a lot of time in the (laughs) server room alone. Um, (laughs) What were you doing in there? I just was doing my job. Um, But I didn't want to be part of like the the office was filling up with people and there was more of like a kind of bro-y culture that had come in. It just started to feel bad and kind of claustrophobic. And then, while Anna was hiding out from the bro culture, she started writing about it. The absurd office perks, the self-serious jargon, the underexamined optimism. At first, this was just a way of recording the stuff she was seeing every day. But eventually, it started to look like a new job. Maybe the job she'd wanted all along. Writer. When she decided to make that switch full-time... The first day of her new, new life arrived with less fanfare than she'd expected. I was just working from home on my laptop. I like had an excerpt interview for a minute over video chat. 
And then they were like, we're going to start revoking your access now. And just like one by one, all of the apps like Slack and my email like stopped working for me. Oh God. And so I just sat at my computer, like refreshing stuff to see if I had been locked out yet until realizing like, oh, actually I don't need to do this. I'm not, I don't work here anymore. So then I took an edible and went and got bangs. (laughs) (laughs) Getting bangs. What could be more optimistic than that? Equipped with new hair and legal weed, Anna finished her book. It's called Uncanny Valley. It's all about her time in the tech world and it's out in January. When Anna looks back on that time, there are so many moments when she felt herself chafing against the role she was trying to play. And in retrospect, it's easy to be like, well, of course, this wasn't the right job for you. But when you're in the moment, it's hard to tell. Because any new job is going to feel weird and uncomfortable sometimes when you're still learning how to do it. Sometimes you settle in and that feeling goes away. Sometimes it doesn't go away and you realize the job is not for you. But sometimes a job stays kind of uncomfortable and hard and you decide you're not going anywhere. It's too important to turn away from. And in fact, maybe the things that make it hard are the same ones that make it important for you to stick around. The freshman class, at least freshman Democrats, are a group of people that took these hard pivots out of our lives, out of our careers, and away from our families to come and serve our country. Congresswoman Lauren Underwood on starting her new job after the break. Before you had actually started, how did you imagine your first day as a congresswoman? Oh, I imagined that I was going to be just like this boss, having a goal for the day, you know, totally understanding everything that was going to happen. And it would be perfectly choreographed to maximize efficiency. (laughs) And that, you know, every day I would leave the office and go home and feel like I had made a real difference. That's Congresswoman Lauren Underwood. She's trained as a nurse, and up until a few years ago, she was working for the Department of Health and Human Services. But at the beginning of this year, she started her new job. She flipped Illinois' 14th district from Republican to Democrat and became the youngest Black woman ever elected to Congress. And like most people starting a new job, she came in with a fantasy version of how things were going to go. Do you remember, like, how you felt the night before, like anticipating showing up for work the next day? Oh my gosh, I was so excited. Swearing in day was, I knew it was going to be nuts and like chaotic, but I didn't fully appreciate how much because it started very, very, very early. And then no one told me really, but it took forever. (laughs) Like we were on the floor for like six hours. It was like this long drawn out thing. And then that first night, we had a vote to reopen government. Because remember, the government was shut down. Oh, right. And so we were doing legislative business on that first day. And so we didn't finish until probably 10, 11 p.m. that night. Long. It felt high stakes from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Right? There was no easing into it. Orientation was very clearly over because we were in the middle of a crisis. Heading into something like that, like, how did you even, how did you know what to wear? What did you wear to stay comfortable for a day like that? (laughs) Well, comfort was not the objective, I have to tell you. Like, the look is millennial congressional. So what does millennial congressional look like uh, that looks, like, joyous and patriotic? So, you know, I did my share of 
shopping online during the holiday season and I stumbled on like the perfect suit. It is a um, red tweed suit with a peplum jacket. Mm -hmm. And every time I see the photos of Swearing and Day, I just am like beaming. I have to tell you because (laughs) we just nailed it. Millennial congressional is still a fairly novel concept. And as people in their 20s and 30s move into the halls of power, they're coming up with a new way to play the role of politician. It's a role that's traditionally required a sturdy public facade. But younger people are more willing to break that facade down and talk about what actually goes on behind the scenes. They're showing the public a new side of Congress. But they're also seeing Congress with new eyes. So we wanted Lauren to tell us what she's learned about daily life on Capitol Hill in the 10 months since she took office. I thought that we were going to be welcomed in with like bright, bold, open arms, like, oh my gosh, you 40 freshmen flipped the house and we're in the majority welcome. Uh-huh. And instead, we came in and everybody was like, vote for me, vote for me, and they wanted something from us. Well, so when you were sort of getting your bearings, I mean, I have to imagine that one thing that's maybe exciting but maybe also intimidating coming in in this role is that Congress is so overwhelmingly so much older than you and kind of the millennial congressional cohort that you were talking about before. 100%. The freshman class, at least freshman Democrats, are a group of people that took these hard pivots out of our lives, out of our careers, and away from our families to come and serve our country at this really critically important time. And there is considerable sacrifice involved in the journey to get here and while serving. I mean, it is not friendly towards relationships and families and the like, right? So if we're going to be sacrificing all this time away, we need to get something done. And so all of us are like, let's just do it. Let's do it now. Let's go, let's go, let's go. This body was not built for young people, particularly like young women. I mean, listen, I'm the youngest Black woman to ever serve in Congress. There is a real millennial cohort of people my age or younger. There's a lot of us, but most of those folks are married or in long-term relationships. Uh-huh. Uh, and so that's it's just different. The life part is just different when you have a life partner who has been on this journey right, of like the campaign, the transition, and serving with you to provide that kind of like, you know, obviously love, caring, support, but then also like logistics, keep your life together. Yeah. (laughs) Support. And so, you know, I'm not sharing this to like, be like, oh, poor Lord. I'm sharing this so that people understand the realities. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the sacrifice of, you know, choosing to pivot out of your life and take office. And the toll that that takes on relationships outside of D.C., how do you manage those connections, those relationships outside of your job? How do you sort of handle, like, scheduling time with friends or family or people back home? I am a terrible friend right now. It is awful. Um, I have a thousand unread text messages, literally. Oh, God. I know. Um, My friends have been so gracious with me. And they're still my friends and they still love me, even (laughs) though I never see them. But like, I want to be like real with you. What's crazy is I started running for Congress in August of 2017, which means that is pretty much the last time that I had like comprehensive, like 
mutually, you know, sharing <laughs> conversations with all of my friends, yeah. all of them, right? And so in my mind, sometimes like life has stopped based on 2017, when in reality, people got married, had babies, their parents died, you know what I mean? These like major life events in this, you know, two, almost two and a half years that I've been on this journey of running. And I feel very, um, very like concretely that we are reaching this point right now where I am not being a good friend. And so, you know, all of America can now hold me to it. Like Lauren Underwood will be a better friend the next time we talk. Hopefully there'll only be like 500 unread texts and, you know, whatever. But um, yeah, it is rough. Well, like I, I don't know. I feel like I'm terrible at responding to text messages. And on one hand, like, I feel like an even bigger loser now because it's like I don't even have the excuse of being in Congress. Like, I'm just being an asshole. Like, I'm not nearly <laughs> as busy as you are. I just need to be better. <laughs> how often do you call home? Like, how often do you call your parents, for example? Well, I see them. So my parents live in my district. Uh-huh. And they love doing stuff. So they come to, like, all our events. And I honestly had to tell them, like, Mom, you know, I can't have my parents in the front row of every Congresswoman Lauren Underwood event. Like, you know, I have to do this stuff, some of this stuff on my own. This sounds exactly like how I imagine my mom would be if I were running for Congress. They're proud and, they, and they're <laughs> excited. Like my dad, we will be, it doesn't matter where we are. You know, we could be at the grocery store paying for groceries. He would be like, so are you a voter? <laughs> <laughs> My my daughter just got elected. Her name is Lauren Underwood, first name, last name, right? And like, it is so embarrassing. And then he'll be like, Lauren, you should talk to that person. Do you have your cards? Do you, they, you think they want a sticker? You know, like something like that. And it's just, it's too much. You are running for re-election in 2020. And it seems like one of the things that's insane about working in Congress is that you sort of just get the hang of your job before you go about having to win it back again. How does it feel mm -hmm. to kind of be on that treadmill? Uh, it's exhausting. It feels like, how does it feel? It feels like life. This is my only knowledge of the job. The reality is two weeks after Election Day last November, I had my first Republican opponent. Two weeks before I've been sworn in while we were still in orientation, like all this stuff. And so my entire time of learning how to do this job and actually doing this job, I have had opponents. Some of my colleagues who flip seats, right, still don't have an opponent. Yeah. I have seven. Being a politician is like being in permanent new job mode. In fact, it's like every day is another job interview. And you can see the other resumes stacking up. And while most of us are only trying to impress one or two bosses, Lauren has some 718,000 constituents deciding whether she gets to stay on. And so for me, that means that there's political consequences of every action, mm -hmm. right? Because there's somebody waiting to pounce on it. But like, I'm not obsessively thinking about it every moment of every day, like, no. And, you know, I am grateful for the chance to do this work for two years. Two years is a long time. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. Also, we need your help. 
listening to Anna Wiener read her job-seeking email got us thinking about all the mortifying emails sitting in our own sent mail folders. All the things that are now a full-body cringe to reread. And so, as we look back over the decade, we want to know, what is the most embarrassing email you sent in the last 10 years? Give us a call and read it to me. Our number is 920-368-3341. Again, 920-368-3341. I cannot wait to hear these emails. Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Kate Parkinson Morgan. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Lynn Levy and Stella Bugby. Thanks this week to Karinza Kadinas, Sangeeta Singh Kurtz, Adrian Green, and Bridget Reed. Mixing is by Haley Shaw. Our music is by Haley Shaw, Emma Munger, and Peter Leonard. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvan Esso. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut. 